Today we're starting a new series, which will take us through the end of October. Um, we're going to be looking through the two letters that Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, also called First and Second Thessalonians. I want to give you guys just a little bit of context before we get into the passage today, because this kind of sets the tone and the idea behind the entire series that we're going to be working with. So Paul helped plant this church in Thessalonica, in the city of Thessalonica, which still exists today. It was the capital city of the region of Macedonia. It was around 100,000 people in size. So by all measures in that time, that was a, it was a pretty sizable city. It had a large Jewish population. It had a lot of people who were pagans, um, people who worship gods outside the Judeo-Christian faith. Uh, and we'll see these two kind of like ideas be, be a common theme throughout the passages that we read together. But in this city, they also had a lot of Romans who were very loyal to Caesar as well. And like Melissa read earlier, this kind of created a problematic situation. A situation because we had all these viewpoints and worldviews that controlled the power in the city. So when Paul plants this congregation in Thessalonica, persecution immediately comes upon them. Um, Paul, who, who planned on being in this area for a while, abruptly leaves this area for, for after just a few weeks, several weeks being there, because he, he, his thought was, well, if I leave, then the persecution will go with me. Things will simmer down if me being a person who is preaching the gospel and thus like causing the persecution, if I leave, the persecution will go away. What ends up happening, though, is that the ire that was like pointed at Paul then gets pointed at the church members in Thessalonica. And while we don't have a ton of specifics, the church was existing in the midst of severe persecution. There was a lot of like things coming upon this church. Uh, a few weeks after Paul leaves there, his concern for this church grows. And so he sends his co-laborer, Timothy, back to check on this church, and he hears back from Timothy. And basically what Timothy comes back and, and says to Paul, and this is the essence of this letter, is, Paul, you would not believe how incredibly well this church is doing. They are in the face of persecution, in the midst of all of this chaos and uprising. They are living exactly how Christ's followers should live. And Paul, with great pride in his heart, is, is just overjoyed. And so Paul writes this letter, knowing that they were doing really well in the face of persecution, but knowing how hard persecution was. Paul was not, you know, a, a stranger to persecution. He was beaten multiple times and thrown in jail multiple times. Paul writes this letter as, as kind of like a gospel encouragement letter to this young church plant that was suffering and struggling and trying to make it in the world, in, in a world that was full of hardship, in the capital city, where there was a ton of conflicting ideas about how the world should work. So if it isn't already obvious, these two letters are going to have a lot to say about how we as Crossbridge, a fairly young church plant, lives in a capital city where there's a ton of conflicting ideas about how the world should work. This let these two letters to the Thessalonians speak a lot to, to our situation as a community. And what we will see is as we read this letter and, and the and steam Paul keeps coming back to, in fact, every single chapter of the first book of Thessalonians, Paul comes back to this idea, and that's the end, the end times, or in fancy Christian language, it's eschatology, like the end of something. Paul wants to encourage this small church um, with this idea of all things are going to come to an end, which to us, it, like from an outset, is like, that's not encouragement. What are, what are you talking about? Why are you so morbid, Paul, right? <laughs> 
all things come to an end, universally and specifically. Church in Thessalonica, this hardship will end, this persecution will end, but also our lives will end, the earth will end in, in one way or another, which from the outside seems like a grim prognosis, but for Christians whose ultimate hope has to be in the resurrection, which was an end of something, and also the return of Jesus, which will mark the end of something. The end is a very good thing for Christians. But more than that, a proper view of the end guides our behavior and our mindset in the present. A proper view of the end helps guide our mindset and our behavior in the present. Think back to that passage Melissa read from Acts 17. My friend Ian, who's a pastor down at Lakeland, says one of the things that he loves most that we'll see in this book, in this letter to the Thessalonians, is that in the midst of all the pressures to spread the gospel and grow the church, the thing that was at the root of all this persecution, and the thing that, as, as the scripture says, had turned this world upside down around them, the thing that did that wasn't their clever ideas, it wasn't their programs, it wasn't big and fast and showy things where people all of a sudden like were confronted with the truth of the gospel because it was like in their face. Rather, it was ordinary Christians living their lives as if Jesus really was their king and that king would someday return. So with all that setting the scene, let's read the first chapter of Thessalonians together all at once. And then I'm going to come back and uh, point out a few things that I think are important for us uh, to glean as we read this letter to the Thessalonians together. So, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God and the Father that your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out not only from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn from God, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, there's a ton in here, that, and I don't want to glance over anything, but we, you know, obviously we're limited by time. But there's a few things that I think are really necessary for us to grasp here in this passage. Um, so I'm going to go back through, and I'm going to reread re the passage and, and kind of make some stops at some certain point. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are all responsible for playing a part in the writing of this letter. We don't know exactly kind of what their roles were in each of them. And I'll mainly refer to Paul as writing this letter just because it's easier to say Paul instead of Paul, Silas, and Timothy every single time. But all three men had something to do with the composition of this letter and it being brought to this church in Thessalonica. 
The three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were missionaries who, who were the first ones to bring the gospel to this region. And that's the account that we have in Acts 17. Silas was a member of the Jerusalem church who Paul had commissioned to come along with him on these journeys. And Timothy was Paul's most trusted associate and co-laborer, the one whom the letters to Timothy in the Bible that we have were written to. Paul considers Timothy, in essence, a son in the gospel. Um, also, fun fact, uh, Timothy, as an adult, had been circumcised by Paul uh, before they left for their journey. So there was like a lot of mutual trust that existed between the two of them. So, um, the three writers continue on. We always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God and before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that these men, these three writers, are thankful for everything that's happening in the church. In large part, it's because what they have seen, they, they've seen or heard in these church members. Um, there's a scholar named Gunther Borncombe who says, The triad of faith, hope, and love is the quintessence of God-given life. And so, for all intents and purposes, this Thessalonian church, this very young church, had embraced, like fully embraced with their whole lives what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. The outworking of their faith, how they were acting, as well as the endurance that they were demonstrating in the face of persecution, it encapsulated a robust and holistic picture of gospel life, which I think is like we need to sit and think about for a minute because think about the timeline we're working with. This is, to me, when I read this, this is absolutely mind-blowing. These people in this church had been, had been Christians for a maximum, a maximum of, of a few months by the time this letter is written. And they have literally already seen their city changed by their faith, by their hope, and by their love. I've been a follower of Jesus for 25 years now, and I'm not sure that like my first couple months, let alone my, my last couple months, could hold a candle to what is happening in this church and in this community in Thessalonica. In fact, these sorts of accounts make me thankful that grace exists because... When I read like of a young Christian who's like doing everything that they're supposed to be doing in the name of Jesus, I think back to like when I was a young Christian and basically making really stupid decisions in the path of following Jesus. Um, but I also think that this verse, these passages, is a good verse specifically to remind us of the importance of determining in our hearts and in our minds where we have placed our hope. The Thessalonians were able to grow, they were able to develop, they were able to mature, and as Acts says, turn the world around them upside down because their hope was in Jesus. They stood up to persecution and hardship because their hope was in the Lord. And not only in the hope that they had in his return, that Jesus would someday come again, but the hope of promises made and promises fulfilled that they had seen in Paul and in these men who preached the gospel to them. They had seen the Lord work in their midst and saw following Jesus was not without substance. Following Jesus was not without power. There was something true and real here and it allowed them to put their ultimate hope in the one who made these promises to them. And so I think these verses, to me at least, help uh, to remind me, exist to remind me to examine where I have placed my hope. Is my ultimate hope in humankind? Is it in career? Is it in science? Is it in children? Is it in money? Like you can have hope in those. I hope my child does what I want them to do. I hope that science 
comes through breakthroughs in these. I, like you can have hope in those things, but it's about where is your ultimate hope place? Where is the priority of your hope place? Because it is only in our Lord Jesus Christ that those promises made can be fulfilled every time without disappointment. Paul continues on, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul says, man, we can clearly see that God has chosen you. He has done something in you. He has breathed life into you because there are unmistakable signs in your life that everyone can see. And when Paul says word alone here, he means speech that isn't uh, accompanied by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't what happened in Thessalonica. Paul says it came, the gospel was preached with both word and power. And we don't have all the details of this power, but this letter makes it clear that the Holy Spirit was doing something, had done something incredibly powerful in the lives of these Thessalonians. Something important to keep in mind is that speech, however eloquent and moving, would have been ineffective uh, in evoking faith from the hearers in Thessalonica. Because by the accepted standards of, of wisdom of that day, of secular wisdom of that day, the gospel truly was foolishness to the pagans of Thessalonica and the other Greek cities. The message of a salvation coming through a crucified Savior was likely to bring more mockery than it was admiration. Greek men would have heard the story of Jesus, a man refusing to fight for an earthly crown, a man who gives himself over to be arrested and put to death, a man who preaches meekness and peace. They would have heard of such a man and thought that following that man was worthless unless unless the testimony of that man's life death and resurrection and ultimate kingship was accompanied by some sort of power and here's the wonderful thing about the holy spirit when it comes in power as it must have in thessalonica it demonstrates that it is that it not only has the power to liberate those who believed it from their sins but it affirms the truth of the gospel the holy spirit when at work in the lives of the believers affirms the truths that we espouse as followers of Jesus. And with those words and with that power, Paul says, comes conviction. There was an outward conviction. There was an inward conviction. Their deep conviction was based on what they had seen God do and what they were convinced he had done through Christ Jesus. And because of that conviction, it changes them. And it changes the world around them so much so that there are literal riots in the city because they were like causing such an uproar. Now, I don't think we should try to cause riots in our city, but I would hope that we are causing enough trouble in our community, good trouble in our communities that is like shaking the foundations loose of people who are stuck in the grave of sin. Like, I hope that we are living in such a way that it that the power of the spirit working out from us shakes people loose in their graves of sin. But this passage ultimately, I think, begs the question for us, well, what's the power for us then, right? Like, what's the power for me and for you? Because while we still have the very same word referred to you here by Paul, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the issue is the power, right, of the spirit, the signs. 
the affirming miracles of the gospel. Where is that power then? Because as much as I'm confident in my ability, uh, as, as, sorry, as much as I'm confident in the ability of the Holy Spirit to work miracles and to heal people and to demonstrate the power of God, I'm not confident in my ability to demonstrate those things in the way that we see the apostles in the first century demonstrating. I mean, Paul literally raised a man from the dead who had fallen out of a third story window because he was teaching for so long. The guy fell asleep while Paul was teaching. The guy fell out the window because he fell asleep and then Paul raised him from the dead. Now I am confident I can put people to sleep by talking for hours, but I'm not confident in my ability to raise them from the dead if they fall out of a building. So what's the power for us, right? Because to me, it doesn't seem like it's a one and one sort of thing. Well, luckily for us, the letter doesn't end here. And I think Paul gives us one of the most important power sources for a Christian today. In the very next verse, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering and with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is the power. This is the power of the outworking of the gospel. This is what can lead to change lives. This is how people can become deeply convinced of who Jesus is. When Christians put their money where their mouth is and with every fiber of their being become an imitator of Christ Jesus to the world around us. The thing that turned this, the world around them upside down in this region and the same thing that can turn the world around us upside down is here in this passage. If we want to harness one of the most powerful sources of the Holy Spirit working in our lives that God has given us, we must fully live as if there is a king that we serve and his name is Jesus. Because the ministry of Christ lived out in, the, in our lives can be so powerful that it awakens the spiritually dead in the grave to hear it and live. The ministry of Christ lived out in our lives can awaken people from the dead in their sin to live. The reality is, is that a message designed to change its hearer's life, a.k.a. the gospel. The gospel is designed to change the hearer's life. It lacks all effectiveness. The gospel lacks all effectiveness if the one who brings the message has conduct that is obviously inconsistent with that message. Here's the rub, though. And I don't think this is a uniquely American problem, but I am certain that it exists in America. We actually aren't evangelizing to people who haven't heard or seen the gospel presented ever before, like Paul was in Thessalonica, right? He, it was, this was clean slate. This was Paul preaching the gospel. They had never heard it before, right? We, rather, are trying to minister to and care for people who have seen the gospel abused. So it's almost as we have to work twice as hard to present the gospel in a biblical, God-honoring way. And I want us to sit here for a second because this is really important. As followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we are up against the Crusades, chattel slavery in the United States, of which the church was at least partially complicit. We have seen controversy of Christian leaders. I mean, just over the past couple of years, we have seen egregious behavior come to light from some of the most prominent names in Christianity. Christians in here, your testimony, your actions, your words, 
how you live your life as a follower of Jesus is maybe more important now than it has ever been before. Because we are not, for the most part, working to communicate the gospel to people who have not heard it before. Rather, we are communicating the gospel to those who have seen it twisted and manipulated and weaponized to harm, marginalize, and oppress. This is an uphill battle we are fighting. And so we have to fight it in the right way. And we'll talk about that idea in greater depth next week, because I don't have the time to talk about all of that. But one of the most important things that we know as we try to fight this uphill battle is that our strength as an imitator of Christ, as a follower of Jesus, cannot be our self-sufficiency. It cannot be a pick yourself up by the bootstraps, just try harder mentality. If we want the world around us to see Jesus, then as always, our strength must arise from the truth of the gospel and from our relationship with Jesus, not in our ability to muster up the courage and the strength and the energy muster up what it takes to look like Jesus. If we want to, if we go out there thinking that we can conquer the world or thinking that our ability is what is going to rescue people from their sins, we will run ourselves into the ground trying to turn the world around us upside down. Trust in Jesus, trust in God's will to see those things done and, and orchestrated the way that he has seen fit. Which if you're a control freak like me, it's a terrifying prospect, right? Because I want to think that somehow by studying the Bible more or by preaching better or by praying more or by whatever, like meeting with more students at CCF, I think that there's some sort of ability that I have to like rescue people from that. Like if I just try harder to look like Jesus, people will like be saved by that. That's not the reality of the situation. Don't rely on yourself to do it. Because as Paul writes later in this letter, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Not us by our own ability. But we still do have that obligation to be imitators of Christ. All right, let's finish this passage up. So Paul tells us that when you're an imitator of Christ, your life becomes a model for others, right? It becomes a representation, a manifestation of Jesus here on this earth. And then look what happens in verses 8 through 10. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, so not only in your region, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, this is probably hyperbolic, right? I doubt believers in South America had heard, uh, probably weren't even believers in South America at this point. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. When your life is lived as an imitator of Christ, your life rings out to others. It rings out to others. I love that Paul uses the verb rang here because it gives the connotation of something being very loud and abrupt. Kind of the way a trumpet blast happens. It's not a slow or gentle build. It's a sudden blast. Which again, keep in mind how young this community of Christians is. Like months. Like nobody here is like, yeah, I've been a Christian for 40 years. Nobody has been a Christian in this church community for longer than a couple months. And Paul says, your behavior, your conduct, the way that you are loving people and loving the community around you, it is ringing out to the entire region. This is after a couple months. As soon as they became followers of Jesus, their lives changed. 
and it rang out around the people around them. It echoed probably further than they thought it might, right? Because this is 2,000 years ago. So they're not like, oh, what's happening over there? Let me call somebody. You know, they can't get the sense of that. It's ringing out further than they thought. But again, it wasn't because that was their goal. Their goal, their hope, was to live as though their King Jesus was going to return. They were living in the light of the end. Their faith became known literally all over the region. And something truly special was happening here for this very small, very young church. And why was it happening? Well, Paul says they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They had, they had changed their lives and began to serve Jesus as their king. It's as simple as that. And we want it to be some sort of like thing that happens. And Paul says, no, it's simply they stopped idolizing other things and made Jesus the king of their life. We want it to be like they were like shooting out healing powers from their hands like a superhero or something. No, they, they stopped worshiping false gods and lived as though Jesus was their king. It's as simple as that. That can change the world around you. Paul says they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They had changed their lives and began to serve Jesus as their king. And I re recognize that by saying that over and over again, I might be beating a dead horse, but this is one of the critical, absolutely critical facets of Christian living, of proper Christian living, of living a life as a follower of Jesus, living in submission to Jesus, living as though he is your Lord and your king, is one of the most important elements of Christian living, but it is also one of the most important ways that the message of the gospel is seen and heard in our communities. And if you take Jesus at his word, living in that way is one of the ways that he is actually going to judge who is a follower of his when he returns, which is why I think Paul uses this sort of language of awaiting the return of Jesus. He says, we wait for his son from heaven when he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us. There is an interconnectedness to living as Jesus has called you to live in the end times, awaiting Jesus's return. We are now like 2,000 years closer to that than in Thessalonica. And so for me, it's like the stakes are even higher. I'm 2,000 years closer to Jesus's return now than the church in Thessalonica was. And Paul's saying, this is an important part of who you are, awaiting Jesus's return. There is repeatedly, both through Jesus's preaching in the Gospels and what the writers of the New Testament indicate, there is an overlap with how you live and being prepared for Jesus's return. For example, you write this down and read it later. Luke 19, 11 through 27. It's called the parable of the talents, right? We've heard this sermon preached a thousand times about not wasting the gifts that God has given you or financial stewardship. I think that misses the point of this story altogether. Instead of making that parable about stewardship or finances or resources, whatever, I think the more important and accurate application of that idea is living in the light of a king who is to return to us once again. Jesus ends that story with the phrase, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. 
This parable to me is about loyalty to your king and what you do for your king while he's gone. And as we await Jesus, our king, to return, this is one of the most significant themes and ideas that we will walk through in Thessalonians, living in light of the end, waiting for our king to return. So as we finish this first chapter up, here's the thing that I want us to take away from today. The expectation of a coming Christ is a constant element in the Christian message. It was emphasized in the preaching of John the Baptist. It was emphasized in the preaching of Jesus, of Paul, of John, and basically every other writer in the New Testament. And it is one of the most important elements of Christian living now, because like I said, we are now 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus than, we, than the church was in that day. Christ is currently, he is exalted with God, and it is from the presence of God that he's going to be revealed in glory, right? He is going to come back in glory at some day. That is promised in scripture. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know when it happens, but we do know that it is promised to happen. And so here's the big idea that I want us to take away. To live as though you are waiting for your king to come back has ethical implications. It has ethical implications. Those who wait for Jesus are bound to live holy lives so they are ready to meet him. We have, an, we have an obligation to live as though we are ready to meet him. There's a lot of other passages you can read that, the, the parable of the, of the uh, bridegroom, right? There's a lot of other, revelation, there's a lot of other passages that point to this idea. It has ethical implications. We have to live as though we are awaiting our King Jesus to return. Ultimately, we live this way to bring God the glory, right? We, we live this way to express gratitude and thankfulness for his act of sending Jesus to save us while we were still sinners. Those are, that is like the top tier thing. We live this way to show our allegiance to our King Jesus. But like what we see happen in Thessalonica is we also live this way for the benefit of those who don't know Christ. Those who don't know Jesus. When Christians are living as though Jesus really is their king, it rings out. And the voice of Christ in your life awakens people to the truth of the gospel. So as we close, instead of questions to talk about with your community group this week or things um, for you to talk about during that time, I just want to simply encourage you to evaluate some areas of your life, areas of your life, and ask yourself as though it, ask yourself if you are living as though Jesus is your king, and if you are living as though you are waiting the return of your king. Um, are your physical actions, your words, your spirit, your attitude, your mentality being lived as though you're poised for Jesus to return? Things like service, kindness, humility, generosity with money, forgiveness, reconciliation, approachability, words that you both speak. Um, are they true and filled with love? Like, are you a truth teller? Things, even things like as, as minute as like your social media presence and how you spend your free time reflect whether or not Jesus is your king. I think if we spend some time contemplating whether or not we are living our lives as imitators of, of, of Christ and, and whether or not we are living as though we are waiting for our king to return, we'll likely find a few gaps in there. And, and scripture calls us to like surrender those things to Jesus, put them underneath his lordship. And as we 
like the Thessalonians, as we're living in the light of the end, evaluating these things will help us more fully embrace um, the same sort of lives that we see the Thessalonians live and the same sort of life that can turn the world around us upside down. So let me pray for us uh, to do the same today, and uh, we'll continue with the rest of the letter next week. God, we thank you so much for um, just your, the testimony that we have of the gospel and the spirit working in the lives of the Thessalonians, um, the power that we see being revealed in their life, um, the power that we see um, being expressed in a young group of Christians who um, didn't really know what it was, didn't really know all that they were getting into, but they were so convinced of the gospel and so convinced of who Jesus was that they surrendered everything to you and it changed their lives. God, as we go out from here, I pray that we live in the light of the end, live in light of, of knowing that we have an obligation to surrender our lives to our King, um, and that we that there are implications to how we live now in the return of Jesus not only how it affects us and our relationship with, with you Father but also how it affects the relationship with others around us God may our lives ring out truth and love in the same way that Jesus' life ring out truth and love may it change the world around us for your glory for your power, for your name to be honored and lifted up among men. Here's something we pray. Amen.